Welcome to Ask the Therapist, a monthly podcast for everyone who's interested in how our minds work, building resilience through journaling and all things therapy. I'm your host, Sarah Rees, a mental health nurse and CBT therapist with over 20 years of experience in the field of mental health. Every day in the UK, a woman is killed by a partner or ex-partner, and in the past year, domestic abuse has become an epidemic. For 30 years, Professor J. Moncton-Smith has been fighting to change this. A former police officer and internationally renowned professor of public protection, she has used her groundbreaking research to develop an eight-stage homicide timeline, and she has also developed a suicide timeline. She lays out the identifiable stages in which coercive controlling relationships can escalate to violence and murder. She draws on disciplines including psychology, sociology and law. She's written a book that opened my eyes to coercive control and has really changed the way I work with many of my clients and thought about relationships in my professional and personal life. Her book is called In Control, Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder. Jane has been very generous in her time and her expertise in coming on the show today so that we can share her insights because the more we open our eyes, the safer we can keep people. So please do share the episode and I'd love to hear what you think. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jane. It's a real pleasure to have you here and to share your knowledge and experience and expertise in this really difficult and challenging area. But as a therapist, a woman and a friend, I've, it's been important to me that I share you know, this, this show with people since I read your book, which I have got here, your In Control book around coercive control, because I was so naive until I came across your book which really opened my eyes and like you said to me when we first talked you start to see it everywhere then and I think we all have a responsibility to kind of open our eyes to what's going on. Can you start by sharing what the statistics are at the moment? Yeah around well especially intimate partner homicides what we're talking about so the statistic of two women a week has been around for a very long time, but it's only part of the story. There are also domestic abuse related suicides, which massively outweigh the homicide statistics. There's also a, a category that I call uh, hidden homicides, and, and I'm doing a, a research project on him, hidden homicides at the moment. So that's a sudden unexplained death where somebody was suffering coercive control at the point they died, high-risk control, and somebody has some suspicions, but nobody has either investigated it or called it a homicide or called it a suicide. And so if you add in those numbers... So you think that somebody had just died from natural causes? Maybe something like um, a fall from a high building. Okay. Like, you know, some of the cases I've looked at, yes, there have been some that were, were considered to be natural causes and turned out that they weren't. There have been staged car collisions, you know, so there are things like an alleged epilepsy seizure. So there's all sorts of sex games gone wrong. I mean, that's something that comes that has come up in the news quite a lot, isn't it? Those types of things. 
where there is a suspicion, but it hasn't been taken forward. If you take all of those numbers together, we're not talking about two a week. We're probably talking about 10 a week. Oh, my gosh. People losing their lives. That is just shocking, isn't it? And you're at the forefront of lots of groundbreaking research around stalking, coercive control, domestic abuse, and and you developed the eight-stage domestic homicide timeline. Can you tell us about what coercive control is as a starting point? Coercive control is an offence now. It's been, it was made an offence in the Serious Crime Act 2015. And I'll explain it in just one, one sentence. It's very complex, obviously. I think the best explanation is um, a, it is a pattern designed to trap someone in a relationship. Now, if you can get your head around that, that everything that's being done to this person is a tactic to make sure they can never leave this. And person. is that a very conscious tactic? Is the person doing that very aware of what they're doing? In the main, yeah. 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 And another, we, we've drawn a, um, a little diagram, which we call the coercive control umbrella, which is a drawing of coercive control so that you can see immediately what it looks like. So it's an umbrella. The umbrella is the coercive control. So you have coercive control written on the, the umbrella. It's the, it's the umbrella offense. It's the umbrella motivation. It's the umbrella abuse. And underneath the umbrella, we've got lots of of the tactics that are used, things like violence, sexual violence, psychological violence, financial abuse. You know, all of these things Mm. that we know are part of domestic abuse. They are all tactics to achieve coercive control. And if you can get that, you get coercive control. And in stage one of the timeline that you developed is about a history of control or violence how could somebody know if the person they've just met has a history yeah there are ways so any type of history this does not necessarily mean a criminal record so this is people who are controlling will be controlling in every single relationship they have irrespective of what the victim is like so this stage one we're talking about just the controlling people, not even victims, not even in it yet. So if they have behaved like it before, they're going to behave like it again. So if you've partnered up with somebody and they say, oh, I had this crazy ex-girlfriend and she used to make me look bad and then she used to push my buttons, they are history. Go, leave straight away. That's what I would. So we need to be asking more questions about past histories is there anything else that we would notice or well you know anybody who's very jealous Mm. at an early stage no that is a big problem anyone who's possessive um that's a big problem and we also have something in this country called the domestic violence disclosure scheme or claire's law people call it now you could go to the police and you can say i'm in a new relationship does my partner have a history of domestic abuse? I have a feeling they might. And the police can make the decision to give you their history. Or the police can proactively come and knock on your door and say, this new person you're with, they have a history. So it's very important that you take history seriously. 
Right, right. And the the second stage is about the in something around the intensity of the the mm. connection. People would do things like there's a quite a fashionable term at the moment called love bombing. Can you tell mm. us about about this stage? Well, stage two, this is when the the controlling person meets somebody who they want to be in a relationship with. Mm. Um we found that in most cases, it, things would happen very quickly. So they might move in together quickly, or this person might be saying, I love you very quickly, or someone might get pregnant quick. Things are happening quickly. Right. And this is what the controlling person wants. They want to get a commitment from you to a relationship as quickly as they possibly can. So love bombing works, you know, makes people feel loved. Oh, I've met the one, this person. But, you know, they're presenting themselves to you in the best possible light. But stage two will always be fairly short because I can't keep it up. And what they're looking for from you is a commitment. Right. OK, so an engagement moving in together, pregnancy. Just saying I love you for some. Oh, wow. Right. Okay. Going on a few dates, you know, can say right now. Now we are in a committed relationship. It's what's going on in their head that's the most important. And how can you tell between love and danger? If somebody's got a history and then they're moving you too fast, that's all the information I need. But if you've got a situation where you're saying you've got two perfectly normal people who really do have this really, really strong passion and they want to get together quickly, obviously that's not always going to be dangerous i i get that so you do have to look out for signs of jealousy and possessiveness they are never ever good it is not good for somebody to try and control you through saying things you do make them jealous that is a it's a massive red flag i'm sorry but it is no, no. and you're a professor of public protection aren't you that that's your role can you tell us a little bit about that and what that involves okay so public protection is an area of police business and so all police will have a public protection department that focuses on things like stalking domestic abuse human trafficking modern slavery hate crime you know homicide, all of these interpersonal violences. So that's what I'm professor of. I do do some lecturing, not as much as I used to do. I do research as well. And I I spend a lot of time training, training the police, judges, psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, lots and lots of people in coercive control and stalking. And I do an awful lot of homicide and coercive control casework as well. And you actually started as a police officer, didn't you? Can you tell us about the first domestic um, abuse scene that you went to? Yes. Um, back in the day, very, very long time ago, I was out on my first domestic with my supervising sergeant. We went to this house where the um, ambulance service had called us because this young woman had been hit in the head with a lump hammer and they were worried that she had a fractured skull. They wanted her to go with them in the ambulance and, you know, her boyfriend had fled the scene, but she wouldn't get in the ambulance and um, nothing nothing would make her. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't even arguing or fighting with them. She was just saying, no, no, I'm not doing it. And um, 
as time went on, it's, you know, it's a busy Saturday night. Uh, we couldn't all stay there. So we all left eventually. And as we were leaving, I said to my sergeant, why won't you get in the ambulance? And he said, um, get used to it, Jane. It's what they're like. <laughs> so I do want to say he was he was a lovely man. He's one of the kindest, most generous people I've ever met. But he was saying to me, they, domestic abuse victims, don't think the same as everybody else. You know, they make reckless decisions. They make weird decisions. We don't understand it. We just have to deal with it. And I do think that was unfair because I don't think domestic abuse victims make reckless decisions at all. I think they make decisions that are very rational, cost-benefit analysis. How safe is this decision going to keep me? Yes, because you, you say in the book, and I think it's a point that really stood out to me because I'd never thought about because you hear these narratives and culturally we have narratives that we just kind of go along with. But you said, why is it in her best interest to stay in that situation? And that's what you'd ask now, isn't it? And that we should all be asking, why is it in somebody's best interest to stay in that situation? It's terrifying, really. And then it makes perfect sense as soon as you see it like that. I don't think we should ever make the assumption that a domestic abuse coercive control victim is making bad decisions. They look bad to us from the outside. I always ask the what would happen if questions. What would happen if you left? What would happen if you didn't answer the phone? What would, you know, what would happen if you got a restraining order? And the answer to those questions tell you an awful lot. Yeah. Um, if I just said to that girl, what would happen if you got in the ambulance? She might have said, oh, my God, I'll get another beating. It'll be more dangerous for me. He'll blame me or tell me I'm making a drama. I'm making him look bad, la, la, la. So, you know, maybe she went to the hospital the next day. Yeah. Where she lie about, about what happened. But it's certainly the, the most chilling thing for me was that she was more scared of what he would do if she went in the ambulance than she was of sitting there all night with a potential fractured skull. And potentially dying. Yes. Yeah. Life-threatening, isn't it? So this in this situation, she was in stage four, which is actually in the relationship. She was in stage stage three is when they're in the relationship, okay? And it's okay. and it dominated by control tactics. Stage four is when there has been a trigger. The trigger that will precede something like a hammer to the head, for sure. Right. So, um, but that could, you know, that there are triggers and there are triggers. So we call this the three C's and this is how coercive control works. So it's control, challenge, consequence, the three C's. Control is in place set of unwritten rules usually you will not do this you will not do that you will do this the challenge phase of this cycle is when one of those rules is broken and the consequence okay. phase is the consequences for you having broken the rule the consequences usually reinstate the control so then you go full you go full circle so you know just a little example from a lady I was speaking to very recently she came out to the car. They were dating. She had on a dress he didn't like. He said, you look like a tart. You're going to make me jealous. Men are going to be looking at you. So she's broken the first rule of the relationship. Don't make me jealous. 
consequences for that were he starts shouting at her, insulting her. Go and change that dress. So she goes and changes the dress. She says to me, I'll never wear that dress again. The control's reinstated. So now it's now the rule, you know, so we're back at the top now. The control's reinstated because she'll never wear that dress again. Now, that's a very simple example of how coercive control can work. It overlayers with other things. But imagine what rule she must have broken to get a lump hammer in the head. So that's what you've got to work out when you see somebody uh, with a serious injury. Yes. Which rule of this relationship did you break? Quite often, the really serious injuries are coming out of things like, you made me jealous. You spoke to another man. I think you're having an affair. Yeah. Is it safe for people to leave at this point? No. No. How do people leave? Separation is the single biggest trigger for a homicide. Like we're talking maybe 90% of cases. Wow. Okay. So that's when the victim says, I'm going to, that's it, I'm going to leave. That's what right. things, so things are escalating along. Mm. Stage four is quite often when somebody says, I'm going to leave you, or they threaten, if you do that, I will leave you, or if this person just imagines they will because they're paranoid and they're always accusing them of having affairs. But that is the single biggest trigger for homicide. So it is the single most dangerous thing that a victim can do. So sometimes they just choose not to do it until it's safe to do so. But we don't necessarily see it in that way. We just think, well, I'd leave. Well, I'd leave. We don't know until we're in the situation what we would do. We would probably leave like a normal, rational thinking person like this person who's not leaving is doing. Yeah, because that was one of my questions. Often people ask, why don't they just leave? That's a, a one of these narratives that's often banded about. But there's, especially in this these situations, there's very good reasons, isn't there, why? They may be very, very worried about their safety. They will absolutely know that it's not going to be consequence-free. There will be consequences for you leaving. And you can see it playing out sometimes in these really awful, aggressive custody battles. And, you know, it's not necessarily just thinking I'm going to get killed, although it is sometimes. And and if we had a friend or knew somebody that was in a situation like this, how could we be supporting somebody? Well, I've, I've been in that situation myself because, um, as I wrote in the book, you know, my daughter was in one of these highly dangerous relationship so I I learned a few things about being on the other side being a mum and and being a friend yes and it's hard so advice I would give you have more influence than you think you do so first of all uh, what I had to realize was I can't be riding in on a white horse the hero come to save you from this relationship and you're coming with me and everything will be fine really rarely happens if you're a mum or a friend you've got to think to yourself okay this is a long game not a quick game okay because they're not going to just leave for so many reasons safety being one of them because they know as soon as they leave it's not over that's when the stalking starts that's when the you know the love bombing comes in again and all these other things so i would say non-judgmental completely 
you never judge. If somebody says, I'm not going to leave, you don't say, well, you should. Don't judge. Try asking them what would happen if questions, just to explore with them, to get them thinking as well, you know, well, what would happen if you left rather than why don't you leave? What would happen if is a very different question. Be everything that the controlling person is not. Be reliable, be kind, be available, be understanding, be all of those things that you're the opposite of this other person. You're demonstrating something else all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You are reliable. You can be trusted. So when that gap in the relationship comes Mm. where they feel they want to leave, can leave, are willing to take the chance, you're there. They can go to you. And, you know, just practical stuff. If it's something that's, you know, you're really frightened of, keep an emergency bag, copies of important documents, money, toiletries, clothes, maybe something for the kids if there's there's Mm. kids. Never, ever, ever confront the abusive person because what tends to happen is then the victim will get blamed for having bad-mouthed them. Not a good idea to do that. Because often people are isolated in these situations, aren't they, as well? And any friends like that, I guess, are pushed straight out. Are there many organisations that you know of? There will always be like a women's aid or something similar in every town across the country, a domestic abuse service that you can call and you can call, you know, confidentially, you can call the National Domestic Violence Helpline or the National Stalking Mm. Helpline. You can go to the police and confide in them. How are the police doing on it now? I've been listening to bits about the Nicola Bully case and and there's a new report out, isn't there, about... You know, I work with the police a lot. Yeah. Um, they've come a long way. They've certainly got um, a better understanding than they used to. They've got better processes in, in place now. I think the... The problem is always going to be an individual officer who might not get it. And people are frightened to go to the police because I think going to the police means that you are saying, right, I'm ready to do something now. And that right. can be a frightening step to take. But sometimes, you know, it'll be third parties who phone the police and that kind of thing. But I would say always, always confide in the local women's service always do that and they're the experts I guess they know the support and the steps that you can take and give you the advice that you need and you talked briefly at the start about this new research that I wasn't aware of at all around the the suicide rates can you tell us a little bit about this and oh my goodness so domestic abuse related suicide is an even bigger problem than than homicide the government in 2015, changed the rules on on homicide reviews to include now suicide reviews. So we are getting a lot of information coming in about domestic abuse-related suicide. We did a piece of work. So we now have what's called the domestic abuse suicide timeline. When you put them next to each other, very, very interesting um, to look at that. But, you know, we've also had a conviction 
for manslaughter in the case of a suicide from an abusive partner. That was Justine Reese. And there was another case, um, the alleged suicide of Jessica Lavrak. The coroner in that case made very direct links between the domestic abuse and Jessica's suicide. So we are moving forward. And the government have just in the last 12 months decided to start counting domestic abuse-related suicides. Well, and is this because friends and family are coming forward and saying about the abusive relationship? There are, yes, because the suicides follow a very you know, common, typical path, just like the homicides do, where you can see that they're, they're suffering terrible abuse. Usually they will try and leave and then it turns to stalking and the person won't leave them alone and their mental health suffers. Oh, it's 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 just an, a terrible thing. And I think that a lot of people in that position reach out for help. But the help is almost all focused on their mental health rather than the uh, abuse. That's a step we need to to take in our in responding to domestic abuses. Because so much of this is about them refusing to go away, even when you leave them, we need better ways to control them don't we yeah that's so interesting and if somebody wanted to have a look at the work you're doing have a read of some of this research where can they find you well all of the the the, so the homicide timeline paper and the other papers but they're academic papers you can go to the university of gloucestershire research repository and see them or there's my book which yes (laughs) which is a very good read it's very accessible and they're absolutely valuable in the work i do I think if you wanted a, like you say, an accessible introduction that takes you through every single stage yeah. and what it looks like and what to look out for, then that that book is probably a really good start. Yeah, yeah, in getting our awareness. It it's almost feels like we should all know about this, shouldn't we? Because once you see it, you can't unsee it and you start recognising it. Yes. And when we recognise that we can start being part of the solution to keep people safer, can't we? And hopefully kind of get these some of these rates down. And then there's a question that I ask all my guests. So it's a final ending question is what would you say if you could go back to your 15 year old self? Do you know, I would say, Jane, be more confident. Because I think if we're confident, we stand up for ourselves more Mm. so many of the problems we meet in life are about not standing up for ourselves and we're the only ones that really going to do that aren't we absolutely Uh, so I'd say have more confidence in yourself I know that's really not even an interesting thing it is it is and I think imagine the change that would make if we all spoke our truth spoke out just a little bit more it's it's having that confidence in yourself though so that when somebody comes along who hasn't got your best interests at heart you'll say to yourself no 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 I know that's bad for me I know I know I'm not doing that and that's what confidence does doesn't it yeah and I talk a lot in my work that the relationship we have with ourselves kind of sets the tone for those around us when we really work on us we are you know shaping everything around us as well be your own best friend and ally yeah and then when these manipulative people come into your life you will know them 
yeah we'll see it yeah that's been amazing and I'm sure it's going to be really helpful for lots of people so um I really appreciate your time and and all your answers to the questions I've really found it so useful again thank you so much thank you for having me Following the interview I did with Jane, I had a session with somebody who I've worked with for a number of years now, and they are now the other side of a coercive control relationship and having gone through horrific post-traumatic stress experience. And she walks in with a real sparkle in her eye and a real joyful life, and it's just absolutely heartwarming. And she shared a poem with me, and it just the timing of it felt so strange because literally The week before I'd interviewed Professor Monkton Smith about coercive control and then I hear this poem and I asked if she would share it with us and she said yes. So here it is. I've been scared in hotel rooms and anxious on planes, sick to the stomach time and again, unable to function when I should feel calm, frightened so easily, wanting to bring myself harm. I carried it on car journeys, things you had said, things I should enjoy became things I would dread. The fog has lifted and it all seems so clear. How did I not see it when it was so near? You hooked me in and you fed me those lies. You showered me with romance, gazed into my eyes. As quick as you gave it, you took it away. You needed control and you made me pay. You punished me with words. You made me question my mind. You abused me with silence time after time. The cycle continued and you hoovered me in. Your love-bombing affection then threw me into the bin. You stole my mind and you ripped out my soul. You made me sick because you needed control. But you are the person who needed the meds. You should have been sectioned to check out your head. You are the one who now sleeps alone with no one for comfort to make your house a home. You are the one who should feel ashamed and sick to the stomach because you are to blame. You are the one who should sit in the chair till you see the truth and you're willing to bear. Because it wasn't the beach or the plane or the car and it wasn't a fear of a land that was far. I wasn't afraid of hotel rooms or a life that was dark and I wasn't afraid that life had no spark. It wasn't a why or a what but a who because the fear that I carried turned out to be you. Before you go, I have something so exciting to share with all the therapists that listen to the show. We are starting a community. It's going to be over on Substack so you can head over to sarahreese.substack.com. The link will be in the show notes. We are building a community of therapists in private practice or people getting started out in private practice. Or if you think it's just going to be further down the line and you want to start learning about it now, there's going to be so many resources out there for you. So you can join as a subscriber for free and get access to the weekly blog post with tips, advice, practical things you can do. Or you can join in now at the very early stage as a founding member for the lowest price it's going to be for a yearly membership where you're going to get monthly Q&A calls, an introductory coaching session with either myself or Sophie Wood to talk about your private practice. And there's going to be many other perks as well. We are so excited to get it going. We're probably going to do a few Q&As for free to kind of give you a bit of a taster of it as well. But you'd need to be subscribed to get the emails for those free Q&As that are going to be launched in the next few weeks. We'd love to see you over there. sarahreese.substack.com Look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for listening to Ask a Therapist. 
For more information about the CBT Journal, visit my website at sarahdreese.co.uk. You can also sign up to download your free guide to building emotional resilience, delivered straight to your inbox. You will then also receive regular newsletters where I share my blog posts, podcasts, and tips and strategies for better mental health and psychological resilience. Don't forget to review and subscribe to the podcast, and you can also share episodes on social media using the hashtag AskTheTherapist. This episode was written and presented by me, Sarah Reese, and edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.